Um, but as Stephen mentioned, we're going through this series called Encounter. Uh, for the next few weeks, we've been looking at what it means to really worship God together uh, as a church, as a family. Uh, that's why we're sitting in the way we're sitting. That's why we want to be singing to one another. We're going to be looking at that next week. Um, and this afternoon, we wanted to think about what it means to pray to God. What does it mean to pray? And I know normally you think a lot about praying individually, but I wanted to think about prayer as a whole. And I think, what does that look like for us corporately as a body of Christ as we come together to pray? At what is going on there? So that's what we're going to look at this, this afternoon. So if you've got your Bibles to hand, we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, looking at verses 14 to 19. So Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. Great, let me read. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Great. As we think about prayer, um, I thought about the way we kind of sort of communicate in this world, in the culture that we are in, we're in today. And who uses WhatsApp? Probably most of you, if not all of us. Now, I think WhatsApp's a really great tool. I love how you can chat with people, you can voice note people, you can send gifts. Man, you can be really creative, can't you? It's such a powerful way to communicate. But it has its limitations. Imagine if that's the only way I could communicate with you. Imagine if this afternoon, doing this sermon, I'm standing here and I'm going to WhatsApp all of you this sermon. I mean, it'd be pretty fun initially, right? Trying to figure out the emojis to use. Sometimes you play those games and you're like dropping in gifts and people are like, yeah, this is great. But I'm not sure that's the best way for us to forge a relationship together as a church family. To really come together to worship God. See, dropping texts and voice notes is not the best way to build a relationship, is it? particularly with people that you love, with my family, with our church family. Imagine if the sole way we communicated was through WhatsApp, where you sit on the sofa and you just sit there WhatsApping each other. I mean, some people do that. It's a bit weird, though, right? But here's a question I want to ask. Is that sometimes how we view prayer? Where we just drop our voice notes and our messages to God and wait for him to answer, to see that message typing, dot, dot, dot. Now, in many ways, I want to make this clear. Somewhere, in some ways, prayer is as simple as that. We can come and talk to God. But I wonder if we need to have a bigger vision, a bigger view of what it means to pray. It is so much more deeper, so much more meaningful when, you, when you're in one another's presence, isn't it? When you're praying, when you're talking, when you're meeting people, to have their undivided attention. I mean, we spent two years going through this, staring at people on Zoom, Got sick of it. It's so much better, isn't it, wouldn't you say, that we can see people face to face? Well, this afternoon, I want to show you that this is what is happening when we pray. That we aren't just dropping messages to God, waiting for Him to respond, but we are, when we pray, we're coming into His presence, face to face with God. And my hope is that as we see this, we will grasp a bigger view of what it means to pray. 
so that we might delight in encountering God as we pray individually in our personal lives, but together as a church. Now, just to give you a heads up, normally what we do at this church is we, we tend to work through books of the Bible. We love to see and, and discover the whole counsel of God. So we normally take a book of the Bible and we work through it. That's what we tend to do. But with this series, what we're finding is we, it's a bit more thematic, which means we can kind of drop into passages here and there. So it's a little bit different from what we normally do. And so even after I read this passage, I'm not going to stick a huge amount inside the passage, but I want us to see how Paul is encountering God in prayer. So actually, I'm going to focus on verse 14, the shortest verse. That is where I'm going to sit. Because I, as I reflect on it, that is... It it captures a lot of what it means to encounter God in prayer as we come before him. So let's dive in. Here it starts. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. Kneel before. What is Paul doing here? He's coming into the presence of God. If you look just up at verse 12, this is what Paul says. He's just been talking about the church and the glories of the church. And in verse 12, he says, In him, in Jesus, in him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. You can sort of picture Paul here literally kneeling before the Father, before God, his Lord, and saying, I'm approaching you right now with freedom and confidence. It's almost as though he's in the throne room of God itself, praying to him. Now, everybody in this room will know who the Queen is, the Queen of England, right? Who is it? Elizabeth, yeah? Everyone agree? Elizabeth II. Okay, so everybody in this room knows Elizabeth II. But it's quite different from somebody who actually says, I've been in the presence of the queen. I was invited into Buckingham Palace. I sat there having tea and scones, 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 I don't know what you, you know the thing, yeah, with jam and cream, or cream and jam, depending on, anyway. There is this particular presence of God that Paul is alluding to as he comes to pray. This is the principle. Every time we pray, every time you open your mouth and you cry out, Father God, Almighty God, every time we open our hearts out and our mouths in prayer, we are stepping into the very presence of God. John Calvin, theologian a few hundred years ago, says it this way, to pray then, to prayer then, we are indebted for penetrating to those riches which are treasured up for us with our Heavenly Father. And he's, he's a lot smarter than I am, so it might... Stick with it. For there is a kind of intercourse between God and humanity by which, having entered the upper sanctuary, we appear before him and appeal to his promises. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, hang on, Mike, but God is everywhere all the time. So what are you and John Calvin talking about? To which I would say, I wish John Calvin were here to bail me out. But let me try I'm totally with you. God is everywhere all the time. The theological word for that is omnipresence. Stephen alluded to it at the start. God is present everywhere all the time. That is so true. Psalm 139, when when I look to the heavens, you are there. When I look to the depths, you are there. God is everywhere all the time. But as his people, we have this privilege that when we come to the Father in prayer, we have unique access to his particular presence. On my days off, um, I try and spend some time with my kids. So if you don't know who, if you don't know me, I have two small kids. I have a three-year-old and an 11-month-old. And it's a little bit like this. Our eldest, Rachel, she's three, and she'll, she'll be wandering around the house. She knows I'm in the house. She's like, oh, daddy's here. He's not working today. Great. And so she's wandering around. She's playing, and you can hear I, She can hear me. I'm sitting there. She can, I can hear her humming to herself and making cups of tea for her teddies. She knows I'm there. 
She knows my presence is there. And then there's that moment when she calls out Appa, which is Korean for daddy. Appa, and then she'll come and she'll stand right there in my presence and look me in the eyes and I will look at her and give her, well, I'll try to give her my undivided attention. And she, she doesn't kneel. In fact, she often makes me kneel. <laughs> but, but there she is. She knows, I'm, she knows my presence is there, but she has this, my undivided attention. My presence was there all the time in the house, but when she calls her Appa, she comes right there and she stands before me and asks me something. Do you see, that's the point. God is present everywhere all the time. But whenever we pray, we come before God in his particular presence. We enter the throne room, as it were, to speak directly to him, which is why Paul can use this language and say, look, that's why I'm kneeling before the Father. Paul, he knows his Bible. He knows God is everywhere. But he gets that in prayer that he's coming before his Father. He is uniquely communing with him, encountering him as he speaks to him. And we need to get this. Look, historically, people could never walk into the presence of God. That was impossible. Because God is pure, he's holy, he's perfect. So it is impossible for anybody, any human being, impure, unholy, and sinful, to remain in the presence of God and survive. That is why Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. You cannot stand in my presence. But God, in his kindness and mercy, was making a way for an unholy people to come into the presence of God so that God could dwell with his people, that he could relate with them. That was always his plan. We saw that last time in the life of Abraham, if you were with us, where there was this huge promise, this covenant, where God said, look, I'm promising to you, Abraham, that you will be a great nation in a promised land, and I, God, will dwell with you. And one of the key ways that God would do this was to raise up a bunch of mediators, these middlemen, who were called priests. And they would come in between unholy people and the holy God to mediate for them. That's the pattern we saw in the Old Testament. We see hints of this throughout. We start with Abraham. When Abraham's there and he's mediating for Sodom and Gomorrah, which isn't even an Israelite kind of town or city, but he's there in his sort of priestly role, mediating between these unholy people and with God. We see that with Moses when he mediates on the mountain, when the people of God who've been just been rescued from Egypt forget, turn their backs on God, and say, oh, let's build this golden calf and worship him. And you're like, what are you doing? But Moses, God says, oh, I'm furious with them, this unholy people. But what does Moses do? He intercedes. He mediates between them. We see this with Samuel, who is called the priest to Israel, mediating with sacrifices and petitions before God. You see the pattern. It becomes clear that these priests would act as representatives on behalf of the people. And the main thing they they would be doing is they would be presenting this unholy people before a holy God often by performing sacrifices. That's what the book of Leviticus is all about. You know, if you ever tried to read the Bible in one year and you get to Leviticus, that's where most people stop. They're like, what is going on here? But the whole point is, the book of Leviticus is to show you how is it that an unholy people can stand before a holy God. And we get to the time of King David and his son, King Solomon, where the Israelites have finally got to this promised land, the land of Canaan. And there in the middle, they build the temple which is God's dwelling place. That is where God would dwell with his people on earth. And right at the heart of the temple was was something called the Holy of Holies, where God's particular presence was. And nobody could ever enter that that place or or else they would die. Except once a year where the high priest could go in. 
Now, in the Holy of Holies, there was this huge, thick, massive curtain that was there just to protect the people. It was probably a few meters high and quite a few feet thick, so it's massive. And it's there as a protective barrier to protect people from the presence of God. You shall not pass. It's like a sign at a nuclear reactor. You really better not go in here or else it will be boom, boom, and boo-hoo. But once a year, one person of all the people out there would enter into this particular presence of God, into the Holy of Holies, to perform this sacrifice called atonement, to atone for the sins of the people once a year, where he would go in and he would sprinkle the blood of an animal on the mercy seat, which was there on the, on the Ark of the Covenant. And that is how the people could remain in the presence of God, but no one could ever enter the Holy of Holies. So you can sense the problem here. God is dwelling with them, but there's this distance, there's this barrier between them and God. They could never actually see him face to face. They would never be in his throne room. Us plebs could never access him. Only the high priest could. And then here, though, as Paul comes to pray, in verse 12, he says we can approach with confidence and freedom. How is it that Paul can kneel before the Father as though he had walked right through the Holy of Holies, through the curtain, into the presence of God? How does he pray that way? Because there would come this final, ultimate high priest that Abraham, that Moses, that Samuel, that all these people were pointing to. See, Jesus came as the king of glory, the king who came to rescue his people, to serve and not to be served, but he also came as the great high priest, the greatest and final high priest, the final mediator who would step in once and for all for his people. He would stand there as a representative for an unholy people before the holy God to bring them into his presence so that they no longer sit under his judgment. And the way he would do that by performing a sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, by himself becoming the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, where he would lay down his life to atone and pay for our sins once and for all through the pouring out of his blood as a mercy offering. And here's the thing. When we think about prayer, the reality is, as an unholy people, any prayers we offer to God should never have been listened to. God has no reason to listen to our prayers. We're not worthy to stand in his presence. That is the reality of who we are. Our prayers should have been met with silence. But do you know what happens at the cross? As Jesus is there, nailed to a, a tree, for the whole world to see, there he is, crying out in prayer, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what is he met with? Silence. Heaven is silent. There is silence in the throne room of grace as the Son of glory gives his life for us. And instead, as Jesus breathed his final breath on the cross, what happens? That massive curtain in the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom in two. And there he says, look, now you can come before my Father. Access was given to all. Do you know what? Jesus hinted at this early on in his ministry. Do you remember that scene when he goes into the temple and he sees all these traders trading? He's like, what are you doing? He overturns the tables. And what does he say? My father's house is a house of prayer. You come here into the temple, past the Holy of Holies, to pray to my father. Where there was once this barrier between us and God, Jesus comes to bring us near. 
He cleanses the temple. He tears tears down the curtain so that we can walk right up into the throne room of God. As Jesus brought people out from judgment into salvation, from death to life, he would draw his people near to God so that we can directly access and commune with his Father. That is why Peter, later on, when he writes, having seen Jesus' ministry, he writes in 1 Peter that we, as Jesus' followers, are a royal priesthood. That is who you are. That is, if you're trusting in Jesus, that is who you are. No longer do we need to have these particular mediators, these middlemen, these people or priests to mediate for us. You don't need me because we have one true mediator. That is Jesus, through whom we all have access to God. Just as a side note, that's that's why we often hear people pray in the name of Jesus because it reminds us, it's a good principle to remind us that there is only one true mediator and that is Christ. So in Christ, you know, you guys are all little mini priests. We all have access, unique access to the Father. So every time we come to pray to him, we're walking right through that torn curtain. As Hebrews 4.16 says, we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now let me just pause it. There's been a lot that's, that's come in for you to listen to, but... I understand, if you're new to Christian things, or if you're, if you're not following Jesus yet, if you're not familiar with this stuff, this might sound like a lot to you. What is he on about? These temples and holy of holies and weird things. So let me just put it simply for you. Because of Jesus, because he died on the cross for you, you as one who was unholy and imperfect, if you put your trust in Jesus, you now have access to the holy and perfect God. The one who can do immeasurably more than you could ever imagine. You have access to him. You can come before the God of the universe and talk to him and commune with him directly because of what Jesus has done. It's like you would go into Buckingham Palace, walk up to the queen and be like, hey Liz. You can walk up with confidence to the throne of grace and speak to him. And the beauty of it is that when you do that, God looks to you and he gives you his undivided attention. I'm listening, my child. That is what is going on every time we come in prayer. Whether we do that in private or whether we do that together corporately. When Katia was leading us in prayer, that is what was going on. She was leading us into the presence of God. So I guess here's the question for us to think about. How often do we think of prayer in that way? See, I sometimes slip into that mindset, oh, I'm just going to drop a quick voice note to God. A quick WhatsApp message to type it out. But I'm starting to realize, as I was reflecting on this, I need to have a bigger view of what is happening. The privilege I have to walk into the throne room of grace. doesn't mean you need to pray for a long time. It can be a short time. But every time you do, you're walking right up to him. Next time you pray, next time you're being led in prayer, picture that. Say that. Pray that to yourself. Man, I'm walking into the throne room of grace. Kneeling right there with confidence, just as Paul does. Knowing we are so welcome that God is giving us his undivided attention. So that's the first thing. We're coming into the presence of God. And then Paul carries on. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. Here's the second thing, the Father. We're there to enjoy our relationship with God. Because he isn't just praying to God, but he's praying to the Father, our Father. 
See, it's not just that we have access to God in his presence as a glorious king, but we also come into the presence of a loving father. The father that word father is a relational word, like a father is to a child. You see, Christ being that final mediator means we now rest in Jesus and his works. We're united to him by faith. His work covers over ours, and so we no longer live under the law of the flesh, but the law of the spirit. It means that Jesus, who says, this is my father, we can pray to the same father, that he is our father too. He gives us the same spirit that gives life, life. In Romans 8.15, it says this, The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. That is what is going on. We are adopted to become part of God's family through Jesus. That is why we can call him Father. Rachel, um, as I said before, Rachel calls me Abba, which is quite close to the Abba Father in Romans 8. Abba means, basically she calls me that whenever um, she wants to reflect that I have a relationship with my dad as a father has to a child. When no one else is there, she calls me that, but she also calls me that in public. Sometimes you hear her at church saying, Appa, Appa, you might have seen her sometimes running up going, Appa, Appa. Now, when I don't listen to her, she sometimes calls me Mike or Babe. (laughs) She's learned that from my mom. And that usually happens when I'm not listening very carefully and um, Jemima's like, Babe, Mike, I need to listen listen better. but you see that word, Appa, it's, it's, it's just an expression of deep, intimate relationship, of love and trust. And Abba, Father, that acts in the same way. It's a sign of legal adoption saying that this person is now my father. I've been purchased by the blood of Christ to be a child of God. But it also draws into this intimacy that we now have with the God of the universe. So into, when we enter into the throne room of God, we are now not just a servant, a subject to the king, but we are a child to an Abba. If you think about it, it's, it's madness. As I said before, if you walked into Queen Elizabeth's throne room and you were like, hey, Liz, you'd be, you'd be like, hang on. Oh, actually, it should be more, all right, Nan. You can't do that unless you're Prince William or have the rights to Prince William as he is an adopt, uh, as a child. And that is what is happening to us when we're adopted. But you need to get this. Walking into the presence of God is no light thing. People, as I mentioned before, people who walked uninvited into the Holy of Holies would die. But this little tent of meeting was nothing compared to how God's presence is described elsewhere in the Bible. In Isaiah chapter 6, we see how the angels, these glorious heavenly beings, would have to cover their eyes in God's presence. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, they proclaim. And they have to cover their eyes because he's so brilliant and glorious. Mighty nations of Egypt, they're they're trembling at at the feet of God in his presence. That is how he's described in Isaiah. In Deuteronomy, we see how God is a consuming fire who will destroy any unholiness that sits before him. He would even consume Aaron, Moses' brother's son, who disobeyed him with fire. And then you get to Revelation. And his throne room, surrounded by lightning and thunder, with myriads, thousands upon thousands of angels, crying out, glory to God. You get this vivid, glorious picture of the throne room of God. And there you can step right in and say, Abba. And he says, yes, my child. I'm listening. 
You see the privilege we have, the relationship we have with God through Christ as we pray. But here's the other mind-blowing thing. See, Romans 8 carries on to show us that when we pray in confidence, we pray in confidence knowing that as we pray, God is talking to God. I'm borrowing this phrase from a great book by Megan Hill. It came out recently about prayer. Because I think that phrase captures it beautifully. She learned it from her dad. God talks to God. If you want to flick there, um, please feel free to. Romans chapter 8. It's, a, it's one of those great passages in the Bible. But just to point out what it says. So remember I said, through the Spirit we can call him Abba, Father. And then in Romans 8 verse 26, this is what it says. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know, know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes prays for us through wordless groans. There's the Spirit. And then you go down to verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us, praying for us. Do you see, when we come into the presence of God in prayer, we enter into this incredible relationship where we hear our prayers echoing around the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit, one in three, three in one, in perfect melodic harmony, hear our prayers and speak them to one another. Do you get that when we pray, we come into this glorious relationship where we realize, actually, we're never alone. God, Father, Son, and Spirit are praying together with us. That is why it's so good to pray Trinitarianly, if that's a word. Praying the names of the Father, Son, and Spirit together. That is how Paul prays here. You see that throughout the prayers in the early church, you notice how many times they pray in a Trinitarian way. Do you see that with Paul? If you flick back to Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason I kneel before the Father, verse 14. Verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with the power through his Spirit in your inner being. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Praying to God, one in three, three in one, knowing that God is talking to God as we pray. And Paul wants us to grasp that. As he prays, he wants us to know the fullness of God. So when you pray, whether in private or in a group, remember this, that you are never alone. That God is there. Father, Son, and Spirit praying with you. So let me just wrap up this first bit. When we're thinking about what prayer is actually doing, when we pray, we can approach the throne room of grace with confidence and freedom because in Jesus, we can come boldly before the Father. We can pour out our hearts to him and remember what a privilege it is to be able to come to this glorious Father and call him Abba, to call him Daddy, and to know that he gives us his undivided attention, to know that as we pray to Abba, Father, the Son and the Spirit are praying together with us, to remind us that we're, no, we're never alone. So let, let us think about a few implications. I'll, there are four things I think uh, that I thought of. There, there could be others as you reflect on it, but I thought these four things might be helpful for us to think about as we think about prayer together as a church. I've talked a lot about this already. The first thing is this. Prayer is about relationship vertically. Prayer is about relationship vertically. In any deep relationship, you want it to be speaking and listening. It'd be weird, wouldn't it, to say you've got a really close friend who never talks to you. Whenever you meet, they just sit there in silence. I know very few people who love to be talked at. To have someone 
to talk with is very, some, very different to have someone who talks at you all the time. It's such a blessing and privilege that we can walk into the throne room of God to pray to our daddy, to our Abba. But then we need to be careful that we are listening to him too. When he speaks, it would be foolish not to listen. God is speaking to us all the time. His very word is before us. And that is why so much of our prayer life should be engaging with his word. That is why Bible reading and prayer come so closely together. We listen to him and he responds. Then he responds back through his word and then we respond back through prayer. And there's this constant communication that we have with God. This is really crucial because we need to be careful that we don't think of prayer as just us just sitting there demanding of God, just dropping messages to him all the time. God, give me this. Help me with this. Give, give me this. But we converse with him. We commune with him. And as we do, we start to see how his truths, the truths here dwell in our minds, shape our hearts, so that we start to pray more and more like Paul does, more and more like Jesus does. If you look carefully at the content of Paul's prayer, they are always shaped by God's will. By God's will and his word. Even in the prayer here, the two big realities that, that Paul wants to pray for the church in Ephesus is that they, that they would know of God's power so that they would know of Christ's love more deeply. He doesn't pray really about their situation, about what's going on. That is what he wants them to know. This is the will of God. I want you to focus on this. His prayers are shaped and guided by what God speaks of. You read the Psalms, and it, we often do find the Psalms are so helpful for us because it, it does speak of situations, but it always, always lands with it being shaped by God's will and desires. What is God saying to us? So here's the, here's the thing to think about. When, when we're praying together, when you're praying individually in your quiet time, give plenty of time to pray in response to God's word. In your focus groups, when you meet together in our midweek groups to study the Bible together, let God's word shape your prayers. Reflect on that passage together and let that passage speak into one another's lives as we lead each other in prayer. As we pray corporately, those leading in prayer, may your prayers be shaped by God's word more richly so that together we can encounter God all the more deeply and richly in our lives. Here's the second thing. If prayer is about relationship vertically, it's also about prayer as a relationship horizontally. Notice Paul's prayers here, shaped by the truths of God, are for the church in Ephesus. In fact, if you look at verse 19, he says this, together with all the Lord's holy people. He wants everybody to know. Prayer is about relationship vertically, but also horizontally. See, do you know, what's the, do, you, do, you realize, do you realize, what's the first thing that the disciples did after the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven? What's the first thing they did? They gathered together to pray. They worked hard at meeting together to pray so frequently. You read the early church throughout Acts, how often they desire to meet together to pray. And the amazing thing is, whenever you look through the book of Acts, every time there's some major event, some major transformation in God's mission, what was going on before? The church was praying together. Acts 4, just after Peter and John have been challenged by the Jewish leaders, they're like, shut up, stop talking about Jesus. They're like, no, we can't. What do they do? They gather together with the church to pray. The ground shakes, and then the mission explodes. Acts 6, seven people are chosen so that they can serve the church better, so that all of them can focus on praying and preaching God's word. And straight after that, 
It's tragic. Stephen dies. The church is scattered, but there's an explosion as God's mission expands into the far corners of the earth. Acts 10, Cornelius, who was a Gentile man, praying over here. Peter was praying over here, a Jew, a Jew. And they come together in this pivotal moment as God says, you know, my, my gospel message is for the Gentiles too. Acts 12, Peter, stuck in prison. Just before he's rele- released, verse 5, the church were praying for him. You get the picture. See, the church knew the importance of prayer, that they had access to the Father, that they could enter the throne room and ask Abba. And they said, you know what? We need to get together to pray regularly, to lead one another into the presence of God, into his throne room, to see more of his will, to ask Abba to guide them, to lead them, to help them. So can I encourage us as a church to prioritize praying together? Come along to the prayer meeting on Sundays. Jonty mentioned it last week. 3.15 before church, we meet there in the minis room. And it means just coming 30 minutes before you would normally come. But the benefits of it are eternal. Come along to Globe Central. We meet once a month on Wednesday to pray together as a church family. Tuesday morning prayers on Zoom. But it doesn't just have to be those formal gatherings. You know what? Grab others to pray. After the service today, grab someone and say, look, can we pray together about something that's on my heart? Use the prayer team at the back. Use 121.org. That's a website where we have our sermons with questions on it afterwards for you to discuss together and then pray together with one another. Let's be, let's be quick to lead one another in, into the throne room of God. Now, there's a lot of stuff in there to do. Perhaps just think of one thing that you could be doing there. One thing, one area of church life that you might want to come together with someone to pray with them. Here's the third thing. Engage in prayer. Engage in prayer. When others are leading, engage in prayer. It's so easy to drift off and get distracted, right? I find that so easy. But it's important to remember, look, this person's about to lead me into prayer, into the throne room of grace. So I need to be ready. Here's one way. This is what Paul shows us. Act. Do something. Do something that reminds you that you're praying. It could be that you do what Paul does and you kneel. You could do that. Some people close their eyes. Others put their hands together. These are practical ways. The Bible doesn't tell us to do that, but these are practical ways. There's wisdom in it to stop us being distracted and for us to be able to picture the throne room of grace. Be present. That's a good start. Be there. Um, practical things, turn your phone off, your smartwatch off, put it onto silent. You wouldn't go into the throne room of Buckingham Palace probably with your phone on, would you? Then why, why do that with God? And then here's the thing, as you pray, engage with it in your heart. Where can you, here's something I try and do, where can I be saying amen? Look for the amens in their prayers. Amen means yes, let it be so, truly, truly. As we hear, and as others lead us in prayer, be thinking, yes, I want to say amen to that. And then, can I push us to be bold and say, do you know what, why not say that out loud? It might be helpful for you, but you know, it sometimes just helps that other brother or sister who's drifting off, and they hear you say amen and think, oh yeah, actually I do want to say amen to that. Let's engage in prayer as others lead us. Here's the last thing, and I think perhaps the most important thing, is to watch our hearts. 
I grew up in a church setting. I grew up in a Korean church in the UK um, where in regards to prayer, it was something that we did a, a lot of. We were really fervent and passionate in prayer. You might have heard of like Korean Tongzonggido where we pray together all like crazy. We get up at like five in the morning. I'm sort of, sort of glad we don't do that here. But you get up at five in the morning, you pray for like an hour, nonstop. Probably 80% of our prayers in the church life would just be gathering together and everyone's just bawling on their knees, like praying out to God. Now, it's not about is that a good way to pray or not. But this is what was going on in my heart when I first joined the, the British church. I'd never been to a, really, a British church before. I became a, a trainee there. I went along. And I went to the prayer meeting. I was like, what's going on here? Like, everyone's so, like, high. <laughs> and sitting and so you know, polite and like, oh, we're taking turns. We don't, we don't pray over each other. And, and then, you know what? I had to confess. At the time, I had the spiritual pride thinking, oh, man, these prayers are so dry and prayerless. Where's the passion? And God has been working on my heart over the years. We need to be really careful when we are praying together corporately, when people pray in different ways. Very broadly, I think there are two types of people. There are those who are more kind of feelers, who love the emotion, the passion, the spontaneity. That's the feelers over here. That's just slightly stereotyping, but stick with me. On the other side, there are those who are more thinkers, who love kind of coherence and structure and logic. Over here, you love those spontaneous prayers. Oh, where's, what, what can we pray about now? Over here, you have those who are like, let's pray the Psalms every week. And can I say, neither is wrong or better than the other. They are both wonderful ways to pray. The Bible doesn't say you need to pray in a particular certain way of the two. And I, in my time, have heard loads of prayers that are spontaneous, but that are repetitive and shallow. As much as hearing written prayers that can feel very dry and lifeless, and likewise, I've heard lots of prayers that are spontaneous, but that are so rich and edifying. And you're like, man, this person is really leading me into the throne room of grace. As much as someone over here praying so emotively, powerfully, and engagingly with their written prayers. And so the point is this. What matters isn't the style of prayer, but it's the depth of communion with God. See, in your heart, whether you tend to more, towards more spontaneous prayers or written prayers, we need to understand both are great ways to pray as long as they come from this depth of relationship with God, where you have spent time in the presence of God, in the throne room of grace and prayer. So let's watch our hearts when others are leading us in prayer. Let's not make that quick jump to presume, oh, the stylistic difference means that they're not spirit-filled and they're not helping us to encounter God. They are. The people who lead us here on Sundays, they pray hard. They work hard at the way they pray. So instead, let's approach with a heart of humility, thinking, where, this, these people are leading me into the throne room of grace. Where can I be saying amen with them? Let me, let me wrap up. Let's, let's finish. If, there's a lot of stuff in there, I know. But if there's one thing I'd love for you to take away is this that we have a bigger view of what prayer is. Prayer is at minimum us talking to God. But it's a, there's a much richer view there where we see how prayer allows us to walk 
right into the presence of God, into the throne room of grace, freely and confidently, to call upon the God of the universe as Abba, Father. And to know that as we pray, God is speaking to God. And my prayer is that that would shape us and enrich in us in our personal lives as we pray together as a church so that we may deepen our encounter with God in prayer. Let's pray together. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. Father, what a wonderful privilege it is that we can come and kneel before you as our Father. To know that because of Christ, we now have full access to you, the God of the universe. That we can come and step into the throne room of grace every time we cry out, Father, God Almighty. Father, would we grasp that bigger view of prayer? Would we see the privilege we have as your people to pray before you? And not just to pray to God, but to pray to our Father. To know that we can call you as Daddy, as Abba, Father. Father, pray that you would help us to pray as a church. Pray that you would help us to pray on our own so that we may encounter you all the more richly and deeply as the God of grace, as the God of might, as the God of power, as our loving Heavenly Father. And we pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.